is an honor to be a son and a daughter of God. Do we have any fired up disciples from the downtown region? Where are the mighty men and women of the York region? It is really a privilege, and I want to say thank you, Evan, for letting me have the privilege to stand before God's people and preach. I also want to lift him up as well. He spent hours yesterday over the phone walking me through the process of how to properly build a sermon. You know, the 10th letter of the English alphabet is J. There are a few English words, starting with the letter J, that I enjoy. I love jollof rice. I love the month of June and July because June is my birthday and July is my wife's birthday. I love Jube Jube's fruit candy. I love Jamaica and Jamaican food. I love orange juice. I really love orange juice. I love Judge Judy. Anyone here love Judge Judy? Now, this one's a little bit controversial. I love Michael Jordan. He is the greatest basketball player of all time. And of course, the creme de la creme, I love Jesus. But you know, in the last five years, where I would say I started to really take discipleship seriously. There is a one, a three-letter word call, uh, called joy that has caught my attention. This morning, I am preaching to myself. And in my lesson, I'm simply going to preach to you about joy. Let's turn in Luke chapter 2. The context is quite simple. The angel comes to Mary to announce the birth of Jesus. In Luke chapter 2, verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over the flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Jesus is the good news that brings joy to the world. It is not a statement we make during the holiday season. It is an absolute truth that stands 365 days a year. The title of my lesson to you this morning is Joy to the World. I have three simple points. Joy after contemplation. Joy after dedication. And joy after the mission. Let's tackle our first point. Point number one, joy after contemplation. Turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah. 
In Nehemiah 8 and in verse 4, we read, Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Manatiah, Shema, Shema was there, Aniah, Huriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. And on his left were Padiah, Mishael, Melchizedek, Hashun, Hashabadana, Zechariah, and Meshalum. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them as he opened it. The people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Yeshua, Bani, Shribiah, Damon, Akub, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah instructed the people in the law while they were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people saying, be still for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. You know, you find right here that the, the remnants of Judah assembled one month after Nehemiah had arrived from Persia back to Jerusalem. We understand in 586 BCE that Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, with his army completely obliterated the city of Jerusalem. He burnt every building to the ground. He literally had his army step with their horses over old men and old women. They tore pregnant women, the, the children, out of the pregnant women. They literally assaulted millions of Jews in Jerusalem. And we find that 70 years later, as the people come back to Jerusalem to rebuild their city, Ezra, who was a scribe, basically he was a Bible expert, was reading the Bible. And yet as they were reading the Bible and listening to it, all of a sudden you just see the people just start, <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Just start weeping. And then all the leaders are like, guys, dude, chill, chill. Just go home. Eat some nice sweets. Eat your, eat your gummy worms. Eat your chocolate bars. Drink some nice juice, some coffee. Relax. Well, most likely, the year is 455 BCE. And this is the 20th year of King Artaxerxes which we know from Nehemiah chapter 1 because Nehemiah worked with Artaxerxes. And yet, this is very interesting because the Bible says that they were listening to the word of God, the law of Moses, which was written in Hebrew. But as Ezra was reading, someone was translating the, the Bible into a language that they could understand. Why? Because at this time, the language the people understood was Aramaic, and because they had been in captivity for so long, many of them did not even know how to speak their own native tongue. You know, when I think about this, uh, it helps me to remind of my wife who is a Spanish speaker. And uh, at home, we have many Bibles. Now, for those of you who know me, I'm like a Bible collector. Some people collect Jordans. 
Some people collect jerseys. Some people collect coins. I collect Bibles. And uh, one time, you know, I was just going about my house, and I, I saw my wife's Spanish and English Bible. And, you know, of course, I was curious, so I opened it. I didn't ask her first. I just took it and started reading. And, you know, I was reading, and I was like, you know, I'm very curious to see how the Spanish people or Spanish speakers call English names. And then I remember looking, I was like, I want to know what the, na- the name James is. In my mind, I'm thinking James because there's a football player named James Rodriguez. But then I found out it's Santiago. How do you go from James to Santiago? I don't know. But as we go back to the text, we find that, as I said before, the people began to cry as they listened to the Bible. It was so bad that Nehemiah literally had to interrupt Ezra, the preacher, and all the other leaders literally had to go and one by one calm all the people down because they were so overwhelmed. You know, so often we read and hear the message in the Bible, but we can respond with a downcast face or sadness in our hearts. And the reason why we feel this way It's because we've decided in our hearts that if we obey God, we're going to be miserable. You know, I think about this. I remember in about 2017, uh, Evan and I at the UFT uh, campus uh, were studying with a a non-Christian. His name was Wesley. And uh, Wesley was studying the Bible for months, and for months he would not commit to repenting of his sins and getting baptized. And, of course, we, we sat down with him, and, and Evan just started to ask him, Wesley, you've learned so many scriptures, and you've been coming out to church for months now. Why don't you want to just put the word of God into practice? He says, you know, I just don't think God is a fair God. I, I just don't believe that a fair God will allow so many wicked things to happen to so many wicked people. And at that time, I'm like, that's, a, that's an interesting point. And I appreciate the wisdom of Evan because Evan literally looked at him and says, dude, that's not really the real issue. The issue is that there's something in your heart that you just don't want to change. And so then he asks Wesley, you think if you obey God, you're going to be miserable. How do you feel now? Miserable. (laughs) So you're afraid that if you obey God, you're going to feel the very way that you already feel now and you haven't decided to obey God. Unfortunately, Wesley didn't change, but the word of God was preached. You know, some of us are sitting here right now, and we've been coming to church for weeks, months, and even years. You've been studying the Bible for a long time. You you might as well have a PhD in Bible study. But you're flat afraid to commit to the word of God. Why? Because you're afraid that if you're wrong, and if you admit that you're wrong, your life's going to be miserable. But the truth is, is that you already are unmiserable. You cannot have joy unless you obey God. Make the decision today. Stop wasting the time that God has given to you. It is not a right, it is a privilege. Repent from all your sin and be baptized before the end of the year. For many of us in the room, we've already repented and been baptized. But I got to say, my brothers and sisters, we're just as unhappy as people in the world. Here's what I've discovered, and, and I say this from a place of weakness because that's just is who I am. 
The reason why we're unhappy, even though we read our Bible every day, we come to church week after week and hear many sermons, is because we've stopped responding to the scriptures in obedience. Our brains have become an intellectual tank, and there is no action in our lives. Make the decision today. Accept the discipling that God has given to you, because unless you do, you cannot have joy in your life. Point number two, joy after dedication. Let's keep reading in Nehemiah chapter 8. In verse 13, it says, On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and Levites, gathered around Ezra the scribe to give attention to the word of the Lord. So they had another church service. That's awesome. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that all the Israelites were to live in booths, during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout the towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms, and shade trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves booths on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built booths and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. You know, after Ezra did a cranking job after the first church service, a month later the people come back again, and they hear the word of God preached to them. But as they were reading and actually listening to the, to the message of Ezra, they realized that they had forgotten to celebrate a festival that was actually happening at that time. And so the people immediately go, kind of imagine a bunch of lumberjacks, grab their, their little axes, start chopping down trees. Can you imagine if we just left this room right now, just went out into the neighborhood and just start chopping down trees? And then we come back together and then we use them and we build a nice house together. This is literally what they were doing. I know some of the brothers would be really fired up about that. But to be very specific, the, the festival that they were supposed to celebrate was called the Festival of Tabernacles. This was a festival they were supposed to celebrate for seven straight days. It required all Jewish men and women, as far as they were separated, to leave the comfort of their own homes, come to a central spot, and live in a temporary shelter for seven straight days. This was basically the Old Testament version of a retreat. And now this reminds me of when I was 16, year, 16 years old. And uh, I had a privilege to go to a denominational Christian camp. And uh, we had this thing called a portage. Now, where we went was Algonquin Park. Now, fun fact, Algonquin Park, which is in northern Ontario, is literally bigger than all the GTA combined. That's how massive it is. It has thousands of lakes and it has some incredibly scary animals. Well, as a 16-year-old, I remember it was a nine-day trip, and the, the camp counselor, the leader of my group, told us very simple. Uh, Isaiah, I know you've got some nice Doritos and gummy worms in your backpack, but I just want to let you know on this trip, there's a limited supply of food. So we had to limit how much food we can bring because we were using these things called food barrels. Now, a food barrel is what you use to store your food while you're camping and canoeing, so that if you get tipped over into the water, your food doesn't get destroyed. 
Or at night, it keeps the food insulated so that, you know, bears who don't really pay for food but just take it would come near your camp, take your food, and if probably a, a little bit hungry, eat you too. So I couldn't bring my bag of Doritos. But you know what? It was incredible. We would camp and literally canoe for hours, hours, hours every day. And then we would stop on land, pick up our canoe and all our stuff, walk for about two to three kilometers every time, across to another body of water, and then canoe again. That was the first time in my life that I developed a six-pack. Amen. Well, let's turn to Numbers 23 to understand this festival a little bit more. In Numbers 23, we find in verse 40. Excuse me, Leviticus 23. In verse 40, on the first day, you are to take choice fruit trees from choice fruit from the trees and palm fronds, leafy branches and poplars, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. Live in booths for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in booths so your descendants would know that I had the Israelites live in booths when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. Right here, the purpose of this festival was to teach God's people to appreciate what God had done for them in their past. God had the Israelites for 40 years live in temporary shelters. But the problem is, all the generations after that had an easier life. And because they had an easier life, they would have become arrogant and unappreciative of God. So God created a festival that the people would have to participate in so that they can understand and appreciate the pain and suffering that their ancestors had and be united to God together. You know, the most important resource, I believe, is not money, but it's time. And as a church... We take being at meetings of the body very seriously. But you know the reality is these meetings are a sacrifice of our time. And what, what happens is as time goes on, as the weeks go on, we start to pull back our hearts from meetings of the body. Sometimes we can even be there physically, but our mind and heart is somewhere else. And the reason why we pull back our hearts is because we believe that because the church is taking so much of our time, we don't have enough time to figure out our life and do what we want. But the issue is not that we don't have enough time. The issue is that we have devoted our time to worldly ambition and we just have divided interests. And I got to talk to you about this because I come from a place of weakness with this. Six years ago, uh, I was taken to step two of church discipline for not being committed to me into the body. So whenever someone goes to church discipline, I know exactly what that looks like. And to this day, I can say to you that it is one of the most powerful things to change your life. I was missing church every month, once a month. And what I was doing was that I had, I would secretly miss church, go spend time with my family, and yet still not even give contribution as I miss church. The, the man who was discipling my t at that time was also leading the church. His name was Jake, and he had been patient with me for, very, for a lot of months. But then, I remember one midweek, he asked me, Isaiah, can you do the welcome on Sunday? I said, no, I can't. 
He said, why not? Well, I won't be at church on Sunday. Amen, Amen bro. And I was a very young Christian at that time, and I knew I was going to have a conversation very soon. <laughs> the next week after, about seven days, he invited me over to Tony and Vito's home. That day was actually Tony's birthday, and they were celebrating Tony's birthday at his house. As I was on the bus, I knew I was going to have the talk. You know how you can just smell that, that the disciples have caught on to your sin, and it's about, it's about you got about to meet the carpet? You know, I walked in, and they said, you know, would you like to eat anything? No, I'm, I'm okay. I, I usually only eat when I feel like eating, so I was like, I'm pretty good. You can just give me some coffee. And so then after some fellowship, we went downstairs. And uh, we went downstairs into Tony's majestic basement, very well cleaned. Thank you, Vita. And, uh, you know, Jake and Tony opened the scriptures to Matthew 18, and it says, Isaiah, the reason why Tony is here, because for months I've been speaking to you about being late for church, you're missing church, you have divided interests. You've not taken my discipling very seriously. Tony is here because we're taking you to step two. But I also want to make this very clear to you. I have been extra patient with you than others. And so the next time I have this conversation with you about missing church, you're a flat gone. At that very moment, the reality that I could actually be put out of the fellowship of God, the fear of God came straight into my heart. And a decision that should have taken five minutes but took eight months, that moment he called me to a decision, this is the last time you miss church. That moment, I sent some text messages and some emails. I said, enough is enough. I got to take a stand. I have never missed church in six years. In January, we've got our winter workshop, our winter retreat. Let's be honest. Some of you don't want to go. You know how I can tell? Because when Dylan and Issa announced it during the announcements, you don't look fired up. You say you've planned a vacation. You say you don't have enough money to go. But if I told you this is the World Cup or a concert, you would make it happen. Here's the reality. We need to repent. Make the decision today. Seek first the kingdom. Every disciple needs to be at the retreat. This is a family meeting. My third and last point, joy after the mission. Ezra chapter 3. In Ezra chapter 3, in verse 10, the Bible says, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and their trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with symbols, took their places to worship and praise the Lord, as described by, the, by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, he is good. His loving to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a, loud, a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept out loud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. While many others shouted for joy. No one can distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping 
because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. Once again, we find Ezra and Nehemiah are what you call cont- contemporary historical narratives. Ezra and Nehemiah both existed and lived around the same time. So there's a lot of overlap between what you read in Ezra and Nehemiah. We find that the remnant, once again, had returned to Jerusalem to rebuild their city and their temple. Well, why is that important, the temple? Because for the Jewish people, having a physical building to worship God was not only about their worship, but it was also about their identity. No temple, no God, no God, no Judaism. And so what happens is that we find right here that the Bible says that the builders complete the foundation, and then all of a sudden, everyone just starts shouting. The younger people were shouting for joy, but the older Jews were weeping. And the shouting was so intense, no one can distinguish between weeping and joy. What we can learn from this is that not all shouting is joy. The, the scriptures teach us that the temple. Thank you. The light, amen. The scriptures teach us that the temple was destroyed in about 586 BCE. And when it happened, the Babylonians burned all of Jerusalem to the ground. But before that happened, God in his mercy sent prophet after prophet after prophet to warn his people to change before disaster would come. You see, God is a fair God. He gives you a warning before he comes. He gives you a nice invitation, tells you I'm coming, and then he comes at the right time. But unfortunately, God's people did not listen. A specific prophet named Jeremiah predicted that after 70 years of the first captivity, God would move in the heart of Cyrus the Great, the king of Persia, to restore a remnant back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. And literally, right now as we read, this is 534 BCE. Exactly 72 years after what God predicted in Jeremiah came to pass. You see, God's word may take years to happen, but it for sure will happen. And yet it's incredible that the remnant had no bulldozers, no cranes, no machines, no Frank Cruz and his carpentry. And they got the job done in two years. And when I think about this, it reminds me of when I was in grade 11. And uh, well, that's actually quite a long time ago. Amen. But for one of our main projects, we were assigned to build a roller coaster. We had to took all that, in my opinion, useless math we learned in physics and actually apply to building a roller coaster. I hate roller coasters, and I did not enjoy this project. But you know when you're in school and you've got a project, it's always smart to go around the people who really like the project. You know, you got to go into that team. You got to find the one guy who's like a nerd or the one girl who cares too much and then be in her team. Work with her, put in a little bit of effort, and then you can get the A+. But it was incredible. It took us about two months to work on this roller coaster. One student actually built a roller coaster that was about this high. It was purely made of wood, and literally he used pipe to literally create a, a, a roller coaster that went all the way up and literally had four incredible loops. I wish I was on this team. Amen. 
Interestingly, the Bible tells us that the people shouted for joy after the completion. Why? It's very simple. Because you cannot experience joy until you complete the mission God has for your life. You know, we need to grab this conviction permanently. God has created you and me for a specific purpose while you're on earth before you die. Here's the reality. Sometimes we don't find that purpose entertaining in the moment. And so we give our attention and our emotions to many other projects and ambitions on this earth. And then we become confused and sad because we're unsatisfied. Because the reality is just because you're busy and productive doesn't mean you're living out the purpose God has for your life. Until you carry out that purpose to completion, then you can experience God's joy. And I remember about five years ago when I was, again, a student at U of T. Um, Evan had just began to be my mentor. And uh, he, he sat me down, and he was going to have what we call a discipling time. Now, sometimes we call it D time, discipling time, group time, D group, all that stuff. Basically the same thing. You sit down, you talk about your life, and you get help on how you can be better. And, uh, you know, he bought me a coffee, which is not unusual. And then he decided to talk. And then he, he brought up this thing called ICCM. Now, just to give you a little bit of context, one of the first conversations I had with Evan when he moved over was, he said, Isaiah, what do you think about becoming a preacher in the future? God forbid. He asked me, why? <laughs> well, because I don't want to be broke. Preachers don't get paid a lot. I came to Canada to escape Nigeria. I am not going back to being broke. The moment he asked that question, I knew that at some point in time, you can just smell in the future you're going to have that conversation again. And this is the conversation. He says, Isaiah, we're going to be starting ICCM, the International College of Christian Ministry. It's a school where disciples who are a part of the church will be trained in thorough biblical knowledge and practical ministry so that as they grow and develop in their character, they can one day lead a church. I said no. Let me, let, me, let me present it to you again. It's an incredible opportunity to raise you up so that you can preach and make a difference. No. <laughs> and, and I appreciate his patience because he, he didn't get mad. And one thing I learned from this conversation is when you challenge someone and they don't do what you say, getting angry is not the answer. He just, he just patiently waited and reasoned with me. He says, bro, why, why not? Bro, man, I really want to be a neurosurgeon, man. It's like, why do you want to be a neurosurgeon? Well, I got to be honest, it's a little bit because of Grey's Anatomy. You know, Derek Shepard. But, you know, I got to be honest, man. Neurosurgeons, they make a lot of money. They drive Mercedes Benz. They live in nice penthouses. I want that. Maybe I can be a neurosurgeon and preach, you know, on the side, you know, here and there a little bit. And then I remember we, we kept having that conversation, and I literally got angry at him. 
I was so angry at him that I ghosted his text and calls for three straight days. He would call me, no answer. Nope, he's going to talk to me about it. I literally ran away for three days. And then we fast forward to December. I had just come home from a night shift at Sunny Brook Hospital, and I was trying to get, you know, some rest. And it was during the holidays. At that time, I didn't really care about celebrating the holidays. I was like, Christmas, I'll, I'll work on Christmas. Time and a half, that's better than singing some Christmas songs. But amen, I've changed. But I remember I woke up from my nap, and then I looked on my phone. And I saw this thing called WhatsApp. And I was added to this chat called ICCM. I wanted to go back to sleep. I could not sleep for the rest of the day. I was like, bro, can you not? <laughs> I've got some ambitions here that I'm trying to get done. Can you, can you call me to this in the future? I said, bro, why don't you just come to the first class and then decide what you're going to do? I came to the first class, and the sermon that was preached was called The Dream, based on Luke chapter 4. It was the first time that I understood that the dream to go to every nation on earth and make disciples was not a second-class dream. It was the only dream worth living for. <laughs> after, after the class, Kelly came up to me and said, Sabra, what do you think? <laughs> I, I think this 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 full-time ministry thing's not that bad. Five years later, I now get to serve as an intern in this amazing church. You know, I really want to lift up two incredible disciples, Tim Kosozi and Isabella Rodales. Both Timothy and Isabella last week finished their last class, and then next August, they will be graduating from ICCM. I, I remember the first time before Tim was asked to be in ICCM, he prayed a prayer that I, I ask you to think carefully before you pray. God, give me more than I can handle and make me better. A week later, you will be in ICCM while you go to York. But I remember that it was a lot of pressure on Tim, and, and I actually saw Tim for the first time cry. I remember he came into my room, we sat down on our bed, and he cried. And now Tim is no longer crying, he's shouting for joy because he's going to be graduating next year. You know, next week, we have an incredible opportunity to complete our mission of saving everyone in Toronto. We're going to be having a Christmas service. I put before you a fact. Many men and women in Toronto right now are more open to God than they've been all year. This is the only opportunity they may ever have to actually listen to the truth. I challenge you, next week when you come to church, don't come alone. Come with a visitor. And I was feeling really incredible to, to really learn and serve in our campus ministry. 
uh, we started the year with 16 full-time students, and our goal was to double from two to four Bible talks. And now, completely because of, power, because of the power of God, in 12 months, God has multiplied us into 34 full-time students and four Bible talks in the church. In closing, I put before you three simple points. Joy after contemplation, take the J. Joy after dedication, take the A. The A. Joy after the mission, take the M. What does it spell? Jam. I hate jam, but I've got joy in my heart, and you're going to have joy in your heart too this season. Thank you, and God bless. <laughs>